friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Since Easter, we've taken a look at who Jesus showed himself to post-resurrection. And uh, we, the, the, the word behold, I think, is an important one for us to grasp. If it begins, if discipleship begins with this idea of beholding, beholding is to observe something in particular, something that is remarkable. It is to stare at intently. It is to gaze upon. And when we gaze upon, when we stare intently at Jesus, things begin to change. So we've looked at Mary, uh, Jesus showing himself to Mary, then, then to uh, the couple on the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus showing himself to the, the disciples, and today we get to look at Thomas. So just a quick review, Mary goes to the tomb. The, that, that first Easter morning and, and the tomb is empty and all of a sudden she's thinking they've stolen his body. Where, where is Jesus? Resurrection wasn't on her mind so she runs back and she gets uh, John and, and Peter and, they, and she says, you got to see this. He, he's gone there. They're like, no, that can't be. And, and then everything's folded nicely and he's like, what, what is going on? And so they run back and they sit in the room and they're scared. Jesus shows up to them. But Thomas wasn't there, and then Jesus comes back to Thomas. So, so John saves this story for last in his gospel, because I think that this was what kind of put a bow on things. And John's saying, this is my defense, this, this whole narrative, this whole gospel, this whole letter is my defense that this is who Jesus said that he was, and he saved this story for last. You can turn in your Bibles or it'll be on your screen. John chapter 20, starting with verse 24, says this, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which just simply means the twin, was one of the twelve. He was not there with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And ever since that moment, we have referred to him as Doubting Thomas. It's a label that we people have put on him, something Jesus never would have done. And I feel bad for Thomas, right? He, he kind of gets labeled with his biggest oops, right? I mean, it's not like we look at Peter and call him petrifying, petrified Peter, right? Or, or James the judgmental or, or, or Paul the hatchet man, right? We don't identify him that way. But all of those guys had baggage in their history. All of them at one point doubted the faith as well. So doubt is just this natural part of the human experience. I actually like this quote in a small book written by Jamie Smith, How Not to Be Secular. He says this, 
He says, do not equate a secular society to a society of unbelief. Instead, a secular society is one in which we all experience the contestability of our belief. What that feels like is to inhabit a society in which on your street, you know there are people who don't believe what you believe, and they're good people, and they're smart people, and you realize that what you believe can't be taken to be axiomatic as the default setting of society anymore. Everybody in a secular, secular age is going to experience what Charles Taylor calls cross-pressure. We're going to feel tugged and pulled and pressured by alternative rival stories of who we are and what we're here for. And he goes ahead and ends that paragraph. We are all Thomas now. Haven't you felt that pressure? Haven't you felt the tug and the pull to other rival stories about who we are and what we're here for? To the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are full of doubters. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out which one besides Thomas were we going to talk about. But I decided on John the Baptist because Jesus called him the greatest human to ever live. And if he had doubts, that made me feel a little bit better about myself. Matthew chapter 11 says it this way. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So John, John is in prison. He's arrested by King Herod, who was really just a puppet governor uh, that Rome instituted to, to kind of manage the Jews and keep them in line. And John calls out King Herod for an affair that he was having with his own sister-in-law. Now, King Herod's wife at the time, who he cheated on, his, her dad was the king of Nebatea. And daddies don't like it when their daughters get cheated on. So a war breaks out and it was disastrous for King Herod. So, so you add being called out to this message that John the Baptist was preaching. He's saying the, the, the true king and the kingdom is right around the corner. It's coming. And that, that was a problem to King Herod. Why? Because Israel already had a king and it was him. So, so he throws John the Baptist into the dungeon. And so John, John the Baptist, that is, sends his disciples. He says, okay, I want you to go ask Jesus, are you the one? Or, or should we be waiting for someone else? Now think about this. This is John who, while he was in his mother's womb, Mary walks in with Jesus in, in her womb, and, and he, he leaps this is the same John who's baptizing in the river. He sees Jesus walk by and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he baptized Jesus. And he gets to hear the audible voice from heaven. Says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is, this is the John, the same John that says, I must decrease 
so that Jesus can increase. And he even told his followers, his disciples, hey, leave me and go follow him. He's the one. So what changed? What changed? His circumstances. He's in prison. And clearly, while he's sitting in prison, Jesus isn't lining up to John's expectations. He may have been expecting what the others were expecting, that, that Jesus would overthrow the king, overthrow the government, and take his rightful place, and then set John free from prison. Jesus reports, says to the disciples, report back to him that the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead raise, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Do you notice anything that Jesus left out? That the prisoners were set free. He's saying, John, I'm not coming this time. And that was the problem, right? See, John knew about all the other miracles that were taking place. And that was his issue. I know what you're doing for them, Lord, but what are you doing for me? You aren't handling this situation correctly. And we all have those same feelings from time to time. Maybe you've struggled with infertility and you've just been praying, Lord, please. And then you see all these babies that are popping up around here and you're like, well, when is it going to be my turn? And you hear about the miracles, I mean real life miracles on Sundays, Wednesdays, and Mondays that are taking place at this altar or in the prayer room. Miracles of healing from cancer and other things. And you're like, when's, hey, when's my turn? Where, where are you here? Maybe it's somebody gets accepted or gets the job that you wanted, gets accepted to the school or, or, or medical school, and you're like, hey, hey I studied too. When, when it, what are you doing for me, Lord? And disappointment so often leads to doubt, and doubt can lead to unbelief. So from John to you and me today, doubt is the air we breathe. We all have these questions, serious questions. If God is so loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's the number one question that leads to doubt. What's the age of the earth? Is it 6,000 years old or is it millions of years old like my professor taught me? What about that? Was there really a worldwide flood where Noah builds a boat and brings the animals in two by two, hippopotamus and kangaroo, right? Is, it, is, that, is that really what happened? Did the dinosaurs fit on that boat, or where do they fall in all of this? Or maybe more serious questions like, what about hell? Is hell really eternal conscious torment? Cain, he gets banished from the garden. All of a sudden he has a wife. Where'd she come from? And we have all these different questions, and sometimes those questions lead to doubt, but doubt is not the same as unbelief, right? And you may be thinking, man, I didn't know I had any doubts till you went through that list, <laughs> and, and now all of a sudden I have some. But doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt can simply be the struggle to believe, especially when they send us out on a search for truth. Unbelief, doubt, not synonymous. Unbelief is the stubborn refusal to believe. It's the denial of truth 
the denial of facts. It's like the little kid who puts his fingers in his ears and is like, la, 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 I can't hear you. That's unbelief. Jesus, he's not afraid of our doubts. He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't rebuke John for wanting to see evidence because Jesus knows that faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith and doubt are often these companions that travel together on this journey towards truth. Jesus would say to us, follow truth. Follow truth wherever it takes you. And then he would say, I am the truth. Don't be afraid of your doubt. It's a natural human experience. We all go through it. We'll try to cover it up. Don't be afraid of it. Just don't stay there. So what do we do? How do we manage our, our doubt in this secular type of society? Well, the first thing I would say is doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. That's the exact opposite of what college professors are going to tell you or did tell you. They, they try to tell us, doubt your beliefs and believe those doubts and creates all kinds of confusion. God is not a God of confusion. So I would say the opposite is true. Doubt your doubts. There's reason to. And believe your beliefs. Secondly, grow your faith. Jesus says to John, go and tell him what you have seen and heard. Sometimes we have to rely on other people's faith, other people's stories, other people's experience spur us along towards faith. Put yourself in situations where you can hear the truth and the truth can then set you free. Take your doubts to church. Let others in on your doubts. Others that, that also are traveling this faith journey with you. Find a spiritual mentor. There is no free soloing. You seen that crazy Netflix thing? You just, the guy's climbing all, no ropes, no nothing. Man, it's crazy and it's just as crazy to do that by ourselves with faith. Another thing that was particularly helpful for me uh, in the early part of college was to confess the creed, the Apostles' Creed. It's over 2,000 years old. And I taped it to the front, just the inside flap of my Bible. And before I would do my quiet time or my reading for the day, I would remember and, and look through the Apostles' Creed to remind myself what it is that I believe. I needed that on a regular intake. So we're going to practice. Humor me? We're going to practice. Will you stand with me? We're going to read the creed together. This is what we, this is what Christians say we believe. It says this, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can sit down.
If you're struggling with doubt, print it out. Tape it to your wall, your mirror, or the inside flap of your Bible. Go over this on a regular basis. It is what we believe. It's the fourth thing that was helpful for me. I don't know if it'll be helpful for you. And that was just the validity of the story of Jesus helped me with my doubts. Books back in my day that were uh, extremely helpful. Uh, The Case for, Lee Strobel wrote a series, The Case for, The Case for Christ, The Case for Christianity, The Case for the Bible. Those were extremely helpful in my times of doubt. Um, Simply Christian by N.T. Wright, Mere Christianity, a classic uh, by C.S. Lewis. A a regular intake, and by the way, most of those people that I just uh, listed, Lee Strobel and C.S. Lewis for sure, were skeptics. They actually set out to prove this thing wrong and in their search became convinced. Back to Thomas. I think it's fair to wonder why Thomas was so stubborn to believe. I mean, think about this. Ten of his closest friends told him the same story. Said, we've seen Jesus. And he says, not not gonna believe it. Not unless I, unless I touch, I see, I feel. For most of us, ten closest friends spent the last ten years kind of rooming with probably would have been enough to give them the benefit of the doubt. Thomas, we've just got to understand where Thomas came from, right? First, Jesus shattered every category that he had about God. So, so his mind was blown. Second thing, Thomas's hopes were up and then his heart was ripped out. His heart was broken. Jesus, who he'd, put, he'd bet the farm on, followed for three years, let him down and was disappointed. And at the point where he said, unless I see him, unless I touch him, you, you can just imagine, he did not want to get his hopes shattered again. A mind that was blown, a heart that was broken. Isn't that the times that you experience doubt too? I mean, can't you relate? Mind blown, heartbroken. All of a sudden we start going, is he even there? Is he even real? Does he even care? Then Jesus walks in. Says a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood in the middle of the room and they peed their pants, right? And then he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, because he knew what was on Thomas's heart. He's not rebuking them. He, he's saying this in the most gentle, fatherly, loving uh, tone that you could have. He says, Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put them into my side. Stop doubting believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. Why don't we call him believing Thomas? (laughs) Right? Believing Thomas. He's the first one to claim it. He's the first one to say, that is Adonai. My Lord and my God. It was unmistakable. Jesus didn't deny it. A lot of times, did Jesus really claim to be God? Yeah, many times. And when others claimed it about him, he's like, yeah, obviously he's right, right? Jesus is not just one great teacher among many. 
We can't just say about him, boy, boy, isn't he interesting? Isn't he a, a great teacher? No, there's going to be lots of people that are interesting, inspiring, great teachers. going to be thousands of them. No, no. This guy, he's Lord. He's Adonai. He is the divine presence. He's the king of the cosmos. Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one, the savior of the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's that magnetic point, first to draw Israel and then the rest of the world. He isn't merely some mildly interesting person. He is the central figure of all of humanity. He's the axis around which the whole world, the whole society is meant to revolve. And not just universally, but also for us individually. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. See, God, we say this around here a lot, God looks like Jesus. He has always looked like Jesus. We haven't always known that, but now, post-resurrection, we do. And now that we know that, it demands a choice. It demands a decision. See, I'm convinced that it wasn't just, the resurrection, unbelievable, but I don't think it was just the resurrection in and of itself that changed Thomas so dramatically. It was the wounds that he felt from the crucifixion. I mean, think about it. You ever wonder why Jesus' resurrected body still displayed the scars? I mean, a lot of times we have a loved one die and we're like, oh, they're set free. They, they're no longer walking with a limp or whatever. Jesus' glorified body still had the scars. And I think it's in part because he wanted us to not only know who he was, but what he's like. So that we would never interact with him Never pray to God without remembering the scars. We can't even understand God without the wounds. They, they tell us that he would never stop at anything in his pursuit for us. Even in the midst of our doubt, he, he, he won't stop at anything. That he'll never leave us. That he'll never forsake us. No matter what's going on in our head. The scars tell us that there's absolutely no condemnation in him. And that sin and death have been defeated once and for all. When we don't want understand what he is up to, those wounds remind us that he might just be up to some of his greatest work. We just can't see it yet. The wounds display to us the measure of his unconditional love. Doubt or no doubt. So the answer to the questions that are often too incomprehensible to even understand is a love too wonderful to exhaust. From that moment, Thomas's life changed forever. We know that Thomas, he died for Jesus. He was the first missionary to go to India. Church tradition tells us that the pagan priest threw spears at him and killed him. And while he was doing it, he was saying what his father said, or what, what Jesus said. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. See, it wasn't just the resurrection. It was the wounds that so dramatically changed Thomas. And Jesus' last words to Thomas in this passage says this, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
That's us in a lot of ways. That's us. As a recovering doubter and skeptic at times, I can tell you there's been times when I've thought about the Thomas passage and it wasn't particularly all that helpful to me at the time. Because I thought, of course, if my friend who was dead came back to life and I touched and felt after a few days of him being dead and he's alive and he's talking to me, I, of course I would believe. Of course I would. And I'm really just doing the same thing that Thomas did unless I, unless you do this for me, right? The reality is he has. He has. So many times for me, so many times in my witness. So when I or others that I've talked with have struggled with doubt, I can tell you this, that my experience is overwhelmingly that it has less to do with the evidence and more to do with my personal story, what's going on in my life at the time. I'll just Hux, Huxley uh, wrote the book Brave New World. Anybody ever to do, have to read that, do a book report on Brave New World? Uh, he actually was the, the one who coined the phrase agnostic. Just simply means, I'm not going to deny that there is a God, we just can't know it. All we can know is what we can see, touch, feel, smell, taste, right? That's it. That's what an agnostic is. Well, later he left being an agnostic and became a Jesus follower. And he wrote in a book in 1937, a book called Ends and Means, he writes this, he said, he said, I had, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none. And I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why, listen to this, why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation. This doubt was an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality, that is Christian morality, because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I chose to doubt because nobody's going to tell me how to live, what to do with my body. Right? We all know people that, like that. I know we told this story before, and it's not to, not to beat up on this person. In fact, they've made a, uh, a conversion back. But in the early days when we were just meeting in houses uh, around the area, we had a former pastor uh, who was a part of our little community and went over to his house, uh, Todd and I went over to his house one time and he was talking about his, his doubt. He was getting a master's in philosophy and I was like, oh no. And he's just like, I just don't know that I can believe it anymore. I'm like, bro, stop it. Stop it. We know too much. We've seen too much. What is it? So what are you talking about? What is it really? What are you talking about? What is the sin? Let's just be real, okay? It's me you're talking to. What's the sin? I don't know what you're talking about. 
And we ended that discussion that night with him saying, you, you just don't understand, which what he was saying is, you're not intelligent, as intelligent as I am, which was true. And so my last statement wasn't probably one of my better ones, but it was, you know what, I may not be as intelligent as you, but I'm not as dumb. The Lord has softened me over the years. <laughs> but what we found two months later is that he was cheating on his wife and that he had nuked his family. See, it's unbelief. It's rarely a head problem, right? It's normally, in most occasions, it's a heart problem. We don't want to surrender our will. And so our minds turn off any of the evidence that contradicts what we want to believe is true, right? Well, we know, and you can take this to the bank, that the mind, the mind will never accept what the heart has already rejected. The mind will never accept what the heart has already rejected. So what comes first? Belief or the willingness to believe? It's the willingness to believe. John 7, 17 says it this way, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Anyone who chooses, there's a choice to make. There's got to be this willingness to believe before we can actually believe. So when, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's saying, while I may not understand why, I do understand who. And I will accept what I can't understand based on what I can and we've got to make the same decision. I know what I've seen, Thomas says, and I've seen too much. And that's why John wrote this down for you and me. If we continue to the, we left off at 29. If we go to verse 30, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So John records seven or eight, depending on how you want to count them, seven or eight of the miracles of the 37 that we read in the Gospels. Right? And he recorded those down. Why? But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen? That's why John took the time to write this down. These are not just Bible stories that we read up here. We don't believe John's account because it's in the Bible. We have a Bible because of John's account and Mark's and Luke's and Matthew's. Does that make sense? So, so, so we don't first base our faith on 66 books that were written down. That's not where we first base our faith. We base our, base our faith off of the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And so when doubt creeps in, and it has and it will again, when it creeps into the recesses of my heart and mind, I have to go back to the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So if you find yourself this morning curious about faith, maybe returning to faith, Maybe you're ready to chuck your faith today, struggling with doubt. What I want to leave you with, there's, there's one question. One question you owe it to yourself to ask and to dig into.
Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because if Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just one of them, just one of the four is a reliable account of this Jesus of Nazareth, it is game on. It is game on. Just one of them. But we have four, and we have multiple. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. If you want to dig in. But discipleship, it begins with beholding, especially something remarkable, to stare at, to gaze upon, to study, to talk with, and worship him. I absolutely love Matthew 28. It's at the end. He's getting ready to ascend. He's already rose from the dead. He's shown himself to a lot of people. He's up on the mountain. They're all there. And it says this. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They'd walked with him. They saw the scars. They were worshiping him, but some doubted. Doubt? So what? Worship him anyways. Amen? A lot of us like to quote Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans that will prosper, not to harm, that will give you a future and hope, right? I like the one, two verses later. It says this. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Are you wrestling with doubt? Join the club. We all do. But when you seek him, you will find him. He's not hiding, right? I remember playing hide and seek with the twins. You've done this if you're parents, right? You hide in the closet and you can kind of hear them scurrying around a little bit and they want to give up and say, <coughs> right? Or, or you knock on it and they're like, oh, I hear that. Did you hear that? Right? Parents, have you done that? That's what God's doing with us. I'm over here. Walk this way. You'll find me. Man can come back up. Faith. Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. Faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. So much about this thing, 52 years into it, I can't explain. But there's way too many things that are undeniable. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, right? And hearing the word of God. Other translations would say, I actually like it better, the word about Jesus. This whole thing changes. Doubt begins to recess when you behold and look at and stare intently and gaze upon Jesus. So, stand with me. Just close our eyes for a second. You and Jesus moment. You and Jesus moment. Just the two of you in the throne room that we sang about earlier. And he asked the question, who am I to you? 
it's in essence what we've been talking about this morning. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Can you say my Lord and my God? And if not, he meets you with a smile. He meets you with outstretched hands that still bear the scars. He says, touch and feel. Decide and believe. I was in the prayer room uh, earlier. Uh, man, we, have it. We, we are blessed. Uh, much of, I think, the Holy Spirit's move has little to do with who gets up here and talks, but what happens in the war room over there. But they're going to be down front. And I would just encourage you, they are wise, godly people who are prayed up and ready to have conversation, maybe a prayer with you. It may have nothing to do with doubt at all today, but as they make their way over to the sides, if you want to pray during this first uh, song, man, I would just encourage you to do that. Um, a lot of times when Holy Spirit draws, we think we'll just wait till the next time or we'll kind of settle this up somewhere else. And, Here's the deal. We don't actually get to choose when Holy Spirit draws, right? And so when he does, just have the courage to move. That's what, that, that's what I would encourage you to. And then at some point, I don't know, Trent, does it pop up on the screen when they go to communion or do you send them to the apostle? So there's going to be a point, maybe a second song or whatever, when Trent prompts us that we'll move into a time of communion. Man, what a time to remember the wounds, remember the scars. We remember not only who he is, but what he is like. And he loves you, has no condemnation towards you. And he's proud of you. Even in the midst of your doubt, he's proud of you. And he'd love it if you'd just take one step towards him. So Father, would you take this message, seal it with, seal it through your Holy Spirit. Man, this is when the, this is when the sermon starts right now. Holy Spirit, we listen to you in Jesus' name. Amen.